You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoy listening. G'day everybody, welcome along to another episode of the Vet Chat. I'm Matt Wells and my guest today is Scott McDougall. G'day Scott, how are you? I'm really well Matt. Good, good. I don't think Scott probably needs too much introduction to most of the people in the in the audience. Um, we're probably about time we had you on here, actually, Scott. We probably referenced you enough times on it, and so it's probably probably time we went to the source. But um, for those that don't necessarily know Scott, so I suppose um, what, managing director at Cognosco, um, which basically means you're in charge of doing lots of trials at, at Anexa. Correct. Yeah. Um, emeritus professor is that the right term? Uh, not not emeritus. Emeritus implies that um, I'm retired and put out to pasture. So no, I'm <laughs> I'm a, I'm a professor, but not not emeritus. <laughs> yeah. So author, obviously, of numerous papers. Um, actually, do, do you know how many papers it is these days? Have you got? Oh. No, no. Probably lost count, but it, it'd be over 130 peer-reviewed papers and yeah. probably two or 300 conference papers now over the years. Yeah, and and obviously lots of fields of expertise in there. Um, I actually I had a look on Google Scholar and I, I was trying to do my background stuff and I was sort of trying to click on things and and um, you know you sort of get the uh, the number of papers and it said um, 20 on this page. Click for click to show more and then it goes to 100 and then it goes to 200. I was like, oh for God's sake! <laughs> uh, so I got to 201. So you're probably about right, uh, and not all peer reviewed. So. But really, you know, and obviously, as I said, lots of lots of areas of expertise. But the one we're focusing on today, of course, is dry cow. And and I suppose for for context on that, and I'm sure most of the people listening are, are pretty well aware that um, if you rewind back a few years to to what 2015, I think the NZBA came out with a statement, which which I guess I'll paraphrase slightly that effectively by 2030 New Zealand would not use prophylactic antibiotics and it was followed within what, 12 18 months or so by by I suppose coming down to a, a slightly more granular level the the DCV then coming out and and um, really I suppose picking on the biggest target of prophylactic antibiotic use that there was in New Zealand at the time and saying we won't use and again paraphrasing won't use prophylactic antibiotics by 2020 for dry cow treatments so and of course, you know, it's not 2020 anymore. And thank God, um, <laughs> we've, uh, it's in the, in the rear view mirror, but, um, yeah, we're a few years down the track. And, and I guess the, the point of these sort of discussions and, and other things that are coming out in the industry, of course, are to sort of, I guess, update people on where we're at now that it's sort of post 2020 and what the next steps are. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a good open sort of starting point for you, Scott. Yeah, so I, I think just to, to put it all in context, um, clearly use of blanket trichotherapy is is not going to be sustainable long term. And yep. the logic there is that when we actually get down to cow or even quarter level and we do a lot of microbiology, what we find is that the great majority of cows and quarters do not have an intramammary infection at the time of drying off. And so logically... Mm. If there's no bugs there, we don't need to be putting antimicrobials in there. So at that mm. kind of you know, very obvious, simple level, then the logic is, yes, we should be targeting the antimicrobials two quarters that need it. Now, and, and that's been recognised internationally now. You know, it's not just New Zealand's going down this pathway. Um, you know, if you went and did a literature search on selective dry cat therapy over the last five years, there's been kind of an explosion of papers and things 
looking mm-hmm. at it. And, and generally, you know, everybody's reached the same sort of conclusion. And, you know, hence the messaging, hence the idea that, yeah, we should really only be using antimicrobials where we need to. Now, there's a few fish hooks in that, and we'll, we'll come back to those a little later. But the overall message is clear. It's, as I say, not just New Zealand. So we look at the situation in uh, the Scandinavian countries, for example, that have never used blanket dry cough therapy. They have always used selective. Uh, the Dutch uh, moved to well, mandated selective about 10 years ago, and that was actually a regulatory intervention. The government intervened because of concerns. Um, and you look at most other Western countries, and there's either a uh, yeah, there's certainly strong advice about moving to selective drug out therapy. There's increased monitoring of drug use and increased monitoring of antimicrobial resistance. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's an international trend. That's where the dairy industry internationally is heading. So, yeah, I, we, you know, we, we, we're moving in parallel with the rest of the world, as it were. Yeah, so those, those pressures don't get less, do they? And, and obviously, you know, there's, that's driven largely by consumer um, demand really isn't it yeah and, and and I guess science as well you know I mean we know that that long term the sustainability of putting an antibiotic into every single cow is is not going to you know it's, it's obviously it's not sustainable I suppose so you know there's there's good scientific reasons for doing it not just cosmetic sort of for appearances it's, it's, it's absolutely good good scientific justification for it as well um, so yeah I mean we're 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 making progress, I guess. We we are uh, we're getting somewhere, but we are past that deadline of twenty twenty three. So, so what is the you know what's the future looking like, or what's twenty three looking like and beyond in terms of the the where we're heading, I suppose, down the down the pathway we've started. Yeah, um, that's a good question. So, I mean, a couple of comments there. One is that yes, there has been change across the industry. So. Dairy NZ undertakes surveys of, of, of you know 500 farmers at random every year. They they call them the welfare survey, but there's actually questions in there about uh, dry cut therapy usage. And Jane Lacey Holbert has done some analysis and shown that over the last five years we have seen a decline in usage of blanket dry cut therapy. That is every quarter of every cow in the herd getting getting an antimicrobial and a, and a, a, a move towards you know what we might regard as best practice which which could be defined as antimicrobials in high cell count cows probably plus an internal teat sealant and then mm. teat sealants alone in the low lower cell count non-clinical mm. cases mm. and as i say you know the the evidence from that survey work is that uh, we've gone from about 75% of cows and herds using blanket five or eight years ago down to a bit over 50%. And conversely, uh, you know, we're up to 25, 30% of herds that are now using, uh, you know, what we might regard as industry best practice. So, you know, first thing is, yes, we, we have made progress and that, and that's great. You can actually see the same in the, in the sales trend. You know, so, so it's a, it is supported. It's not just the farmers saying that we can, we can see that. Um, products like long-acting dry cows are, are declining. Products like teat sealants are, are in, increasing quite rapidly. So, you know, the biggest products in the country are no longer dry cows and, and actually uh, sheep capsules. So, you know, probably both, you could say, are less sustainable things. So they were the biggest and, and they're not anymore. So it's things like teat sealants and vaccines and, and um, trace elements that are sort of the, the big rises in there, So which is good. I mean, we are moving towards 
Um, yeah, obviously the farmers are saying that they're doing it, the sales are supporting that. So, so it is all moving in, in, in that direction for sure. Look, and I, I think that's right, you know, the, and, and change takes time. You know, mm. it, uh, it's interesting talking to people who work in the agricultural extension space and they have these kind of models that allow them to look at, you know, what proportion of a group of farmers are going to pick an idea up. And, you know, when you model it through, it actually takes quite a lot of time for, for, for change to occur. So, mm. you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up about the fact that we haven't got to zero blanket trichar therapy. And I think it's also really important at this point to make the point that the goal is not zero blanket trichar yeah. therapy. And, and I think, you know, as veterinarians, we have the right to prescribe. We have the right to prescribe blanket trichar therapy. And there are some herds in some years when it's absolutely appropriate to use blanket trichar therapy. Mm. Um, and uh, the SMART SAM plan, so our National Mastitis Plan, has given us guidance. So for those of you who haven't seen it, go and have a look at Tech Note 14, which is available as a PDF mm. on the DairyNZ website. Yeah. And there's a nice table in there that just outlines the situations where, you know, you as a veterinarian can quite rightly consider use of blanket trichar therapy. So, yeah, just making the point, there are some herds that will require blanket trichar therapy. But, you know, the direction of travel is pretty clear. You know, we, we if it's not necessary, don't do it. Um, and we'll come on to some of the complexities of, of how you make those decisions, I think, a little later. But mm. just, just being clear that no one's taking anybody's right to prescribe away. Yeah, and and you're right. So we, we do still have that right to prescribe. Um, I guess we we do have those guidelines. I mean, you made the point about, you know, you talk about smart, Sam. I guess it's good to... Well, you mentioned smart, Sam, just to, just to sort of talk a little bit about that industry... You know, the the setting of direction, I suppose. The you know who is who is responsible, um, who has been historically, who is going forward responsible for actually setting that industry policy. Because you know, obviously, Smart Sam, but who's behind Smart Sam and and what's actually happening there? So yeah, you're probably one of the best people to um, to comment on that. So yeah, so I mean, mastitis is an interesting. Um, area. I mean, if you think about other areas of dairy practice, cattle practice, for example. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of policy around disease and disease management, you know, comes from within the veterinary space. Mastitis, for various reasons, has got this sort of overarching governance group called the National Mastitis Advisory Committee, or NMAC for short. And this is an organisation that actually uh, evolved out of the introduction of herd testing. So it's actually quite an old organisation. It's about 30-something 30, 30 years old. And it started because when herd testing was introduced, it was, a, you know, it, was, it was a change. It was a new bit of technology. People didn't understand what cell count meant or how you used it. So NMAC was kind of set up to, to support the introduction of herd testing, but also to build mastitis control, milk quality management systems and using herd testing as a way in to have those discussions with farmers. And so over the years, um, NMAC's evolved. It, the, the issues that it's faced have evolved. But it was actually NMAC that was instrumental in the first SAM plan, so the Seasonal Approach to Managing Mastitis, which was developed mm. in the early 90s, and then the big refresh that happened in 2010 or thereabouts, which which we now know as Smart SAM. So, you know, mm. the, the industry-facing, the public-facing part of NMAC is 
is that set of tools or is that that program we call Smart Sam. But sitting behind that is a group of, of people, and those people include uh, the milk processors, the herd test organisations, the animal health companies, the researchers, the universities, the trainers, uh, and, and a number of other technical people. And, uh, you know, that group, you know, is a policy level group, if you like, and a lot of, you know, stuff gets thrashed around quietly behind the scenes until hopefully we get consensus about what, what should be, you know, should be seen as, as best practice. And that's then introduced into Smart Sam. So tech notes get rewritten mm. as, as information gets upgraded. Yeah. So, so they're really, they're responsible for setting the direction, but not for any regulation around. Um, the whole process or mastitis in general, but the drive process, right? Correct. And, and yeah, it's a policy setting group. It's, you know, trying to provide best practice, but it has no regulatory standing. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, it has no, you know, law sitting around it. So, you know, as, as veterinarians, we're prescribing under the Surgeons Act. And obviously we've got the Vet Council, which is our, our professional standards body. And, you know, the Vet Council is aligned with with smart sam in the sense that you know it's it's looked at where the best data or the best policy is being formed and said well look smart mm. sam's actually doing a good job in the mastitis space let's align so the advice that that council is giving is aligned with with what smart sam is saying mm. so yeah in terms of the regulatory space um you know, obviously, ACVM's got a role in terms of how drugs are registered, so what the label says, how we can yeah. use drugs. So that's one regulatory space. Uh, the Vet Council obviously has a role in terms of professional standards and what is seen as as acceptable or good practice. And really, uh, in the whole area of antimicrobial use, it's it's about what is you know professionally acceptable what do our peers believe is is good practice what we also have and sorry i should mention is that we've got the prescribing guidelines uh for you know for for cattle for equine for for small animal medicine which which have been produced by the new zealand veterinary association so there are a set of guidelines there again they're aligned in the mastitis world they're aligned with smart sam uh, but obviously mm. cover a lot of other conditions as well so you know as veterinarians we've we've we have got reasonably good guidance as to what our peers would regard as good practice and regulation around that is going to come from the vet council you know in the case of individual prescribers but mm. we are i think it unlikely that we're going to see government step in and wave a big stick and say you know you will not use blanket trichar therapy you know that my perception this is only my perception is that that's unlikely and looping back to what you said earlier matt I think it's far more likely that we're going to see change being driven by the consumers uh, directly or indirectly. So via, the, you know, putting pressure back on milk processors. And I know, mm -hmm. for example, that, you know, our milk processors are obviously selling milk product into the international market and they're talking to their customers, which often are big multinationals in their own rights who are asking questions around welfare, around drug use, around environmental stuff. And so, you know, that's where a lot of the, uh, you know, I think that the change will be driven from ultimately. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's nothing much more powerful in terms of trying to actually get farmers to do something than somebody saying, we're not going to pick your milk up if you don't do this. So, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, there's, I guess there's, 
a fair bit of information out there for the vets and for the farmers, of course. You know, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there telling them, telling everybody within the space what the, the best practice is. And, and uh, yeah, we've seen similar sort of similar models in other, other parts of farming as well. But there, there is this sort of phase, I suppose, and for those that are kind of perhaps getting a bit frustrated at the pace of, of, um, of change, you know, there, there's always a sort of, um, you know, change, change sort of tends to happen slowly at first and then sometimes quite rapidly, and we've seen that in the, in the dairy industry. And there, there is this sort of what they call the, the socialisation of ideas phase, which, um, which seems to be a, a sort of, Somebody's hijacked the word socialisation. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't quite what what it was when I was at university. But yeah, the, and at the moment we're kind of you, know, you can sort of see the the gradual strengthening of language happening. Um, from you know we think it would be a good idea if you did this to we really think you should, and uh, we haven't reached the must and and we won't pick your milk up type phase. And it's not necessarily coming soon, but, but yeah, you know, things things can change quite quickly and, and um, you know, those with longer memories might remember things like ODB, estradiol benzoate, quite quickly being, you know, consumer pressure very quickly um changing changing farm policies. So yeah, you know, it's it's happening. Um I think you make the point probably quite well that that it's uh, it's self-regulating at the moment it's probably not coming up as a big flag to the government which is a good thing you know that, that they need to intervene um, because there is progress being made and and quite good progress you know if you actually look at the you know coming back to that point we've if you go back sort of 10 years or so we've actually come a remarkably long way and sometimes that perspective of just stopping and looking and, and thinking about it is is actually quite you know quite good but to some people, maybe they think we haven't come far enough, but uh, probably just just being patient, perhaps. Yeah, look, I think they're very well made points, Matt. And in a sense, because we are moving in the right direction, and and I think the profession generally is has got the message and is is working along these pathways. And and to be fair, m- many farmers I talk to have an understanding. They understand the bigger picture. They understand that where we're trying to go. So, you know, yes, undoubtedly there are farmers out there who don't understand or or don't perceive that the risk of antimicrobial resistance, for example, applies to them and therefore it's not a threat to them and therefore, you know, they they don't perceive the need to change. But as, you know, flipping that around and putting a positive note on it, yeah, many farmers you know, once you talk them through it, they understand it, they understand the mm. big picture. And, mm. you know, as we'll talk about, I think a little later, that there, you know, there are some trade-offs there about how we manage the drying off process, what decisions we make about individual cows mm. and quarters and products um, that mean there is a, you know, potentially a higher level of management required in, in the mm. situation mm. where we're using selective. But, and we, you know, we are getting there. You know, the the knowledge is there, the the technical knowledge is there. It's just getting application of it, um, mm. and mm. and rolling that out across, you know, eleven thousand dairy farms and you know, six six hundred dairy vets or whatever the numbers are, to, so that we're all all uh, all aligned and all all got the knowledge and skills to to get on and get the job done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I suppose to, just briefly, the the reason we're doing this is to avoid AMR, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know the, the central reason. Um, I know you've done a bit of work recently, sort of benchmarking, I guess, how much AMR we actually have, um, or in theory, due to due to dry cow. Do you want to just give us a quick sort of overview of what what you found there? 
Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's an obvious question. You know, is what mm. our prescribing as veterinarians having a negative impact or increasing the risk of antimicrobial resistance? And internationally, there is some data to, to, to support that. So, yeah, you're right, Matt. We, we've had a look at it a couple of different ways. One is using the dairy antibiogram data. So, we, you know, we have a, an understanding of, uh, whether there's penicillin-resistant Staphylococcus or Streptococcus on a farm, for example, we also uh, know from from that data set whether the herd has been using blanket or selective dry cow therapy over the last mm. X number of years. And just by association, it's, so it's 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 observational study, and I put that up as a as a caveat right up front. But what we have shown is that herds that use blanket dry cow therapy at the end of the previous lactation are more likely to have penicillin-resistant Staph aureus and Strep uberus in their bulk tank milk in the subsequent season. Um, so, yes, there is a, an association. I'm, I'm going to be very cautious about saying it's cause and effect, but there's yes. certainly an association there, and it's statistically significant. Um, mm. The other point I'd make is that it's not black and white. You know, it's not the situation where you use selective, you've got no resistance, you use blanket, you've got 100% resistant. You know, life's not that simple. And obviously, if you're using selective, you're still putting antimicrobials in the system. You're still potentially putting selection pressure on. So it's it's the relative amount of selection pressure we're putting on. So in absolute terms, the increase in proportion of herds that are resistant is about 5%. So herds, putting that another way, herds that use blanket trichotherapy are 5% more likely to have resistant staph aureus and resistant strep uberus in their bulk tank milk. Um, so not huge effects, but, but yeah. as I say, it's there, it's significant. Now, wearing my science hat, what I'd love to be able to do would be to actually, you know, run the randomised controlled study where we, um, you know, took herds that were on selective and put half of them onto blanket and vice versa, took herds that were on blanket and switched half of them to selective and monitored them over time to see what would happen. Uh, and and no one's actually done that study. Um, mm. Probably the closest we've got is the Dutch. Um, I mentioned earlier that they banned blanket dry cow therapy in 2012, I want to say, and they've, been, they've got a really good antimicrobial resistance monitoring scheme, the Marin scheme. Mm. And you can actually see the reduction in antimicrobial resistance across the animal industries in the Netherlands when those regulatory changes came in. So at industry level, not so much in the dairy industry, it's, it's more in the monogastrics, but, but there is some evidence there that, that those sort of big, large-scale changes, industry-level changes, do make a difference long-term. Mm, it was where they had their biggest issue, wasn't it? It was, it was mostly um, the pig industry, but um, but yeah, it all gets caught up in it. The whole animal health industry does, of course. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess good to be, I suppose, I think the worst situation is to be trying to fix a problem with something like, um, you know, changing to selective dry cow because we've got a major AMR issue and trying to solve it. So it's much better that we're actually trying to avert a problem than fix it. So we're in the, we're in the right space. Look, I'd, I'd agree. Um, once, you know, people talk about sort of some of the, the, the modeling or the, yeah, of, of antimicrobial resistance. You're right. You, you reach a tipping point where, mm. you know, if, 
antimicrobial resistance is out there, and I think you know the other thing to put in context here is antimicrobial resistance has been around a lot longer than human use of antimicrobials because mm. bacteria have antimicrobial resistance genes in them because they want to defend themselves against natural antimicrobials mm. that other bacteria are producing. Mm. So, yeah, there's been some really haven't, nice... Haven't they found them in, um, haven't they found the genes in, in mammoth carcasses and those types of things? Oh, being yep. frozen, so... Yeah. Yep, mammoth carcasses. They've drilled into Antarctic lakes and found bacteria mm. that are, you know, under two kilometres of ice that haven't seen humans ever uh, and grown bacteria that got resistant genes. They've been into... Uh, people have been into the Amazon jungle and got fecal samples from uh, Amazonian Indians who've never used antimicrobials, and you'll find antimicrobial resistance Mm. genes there. Mm. But the important thing is that we're putting selection pressure on there and we're accelerating the rate or the the spread of those resistance genes. So they're always there. The resistance genes are always there. The issue is how much pressure, how much positive Mm. selection pressure we put on and as I say, there's kind of a, a tipping point where you put enough selection pressure on and it becomes such a an advantage to a bacterial species to carry the resistance genes and potentially virulence genes that that mm. genotype moves through the population and, and, and you know mm. can mm. move very quickly, which mm. which is which is the concern. Mm. And the flip the flip side of that is that if you take that selection pressure away, sometimes that gene can can dilute back out again. So yeah, it it does, um, and it does. It generally comes down, although not always. And 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 it's mm. kind of it, you know it, it's not as simple as drug in resistance out. You know, it, it it's mm. it's it's actually the ecology of it's quite complicated. And just one example of that, we we did some work where we looked at organic herds that hadn't used antimicrobials at all for at least three years. And some of these herds hadn't used antimicrobials. I think 17 years was the longest time one of them had been organic. And yet we found penicillin-resistant staph aureus in quite a number of those herds. And, you know, I don't fully understand why, but it, likely that those resistance genes were persisting at low levels in the population, even though we weren't putting a lot of selection pressure on. Mm. Or the other possibility is that antimicrobial resistance genes had been introduced from another source. So um, we've mm. recently demonstrated that um, MRSA can jump from humans to cows. Mm. So we get reverse zoonosis or staph, resistant staph aureus has been found in things like seagulls and in rabbits and you know other species so you can think about a dairy farm being a you know we try and keep it as a nice tight biosecurity zone uh, but you know there are potentially avenues for antimicrobial resistance genes to get onto that farm independent of the cows and independent of drug use on that farm so you know if you if you turn up a resistance gene on a farm and you say well actually this farm hasn't used that antimicrobial and yet we've got a resistance gene to um, an antimicrobial the farm has never used. There are explanations for that because of Mm. the movement Mm. of these resistance genes around the environment. So we've got to think about resistance beyond the cow and beyond the drug we've just given to the cow. It's a whole ecosystem of of resistance genes moving around. So it's quite a, it's, it's a really fascinating but rather complicated system. It is. We could probably talk for hours about it, but we probably we probably better keep on about the dry cow side of it, I suppose. Yep. But so I mean, and, and I guess it, it does segue in though into the the sort of 
selective dry cow and reducing that selective pressure. And we've, we've learned quite a bit probably over the five years or so that we've been really honing in on trying to reduce the amount of dry cow that we're using about that selection of cows. And do you want to sort of give us a, a, a summary, I suppose, of where we're, where we're at in terms of the best advice around choosing those cows, selecting those cows? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you're right. As soon as we start talking about selective dry cow therapy, we've then got to make a decision about which cows, which mm. quarters we're going to treat. And the short answer is there's no perfect system. And and one thing I like mm. to say to people is that, you know, whatever somatic cell count threshold we use or clinical history we use or um, RMT school we use or conductivity mm. school we use, with any of those tests, we have to draw a line in the sand and say, well, you know, above the line, we're going to define those animals as likely infected. We're going to, you know, therefore logically use an antimicrobial and, and defensively so. And below some line, we're going to say, you know, the probability that animal infected or that quarter's infected is relatively low. Therefore, we're, we're not going to use antimicrobials and we're either going to do nothing or, or obviously preferably use an internal teat sealant to prevent new mm. infection. And so we've, we've done quite a lot of work in this space over the last five years trying to really understand what those cut points mean or where those thresholds should be. And, I guess the good news is that herd tests are actually pretty good. You know, we mm. worry about the timing of herd tests and that they're not perfect. But by taking milk samples at drying off and then looking backward at herd tests for those animals, what we've been able to show is that a maximum somatic cell count at any herd test or even at the last herd test is reasonably predictive of whether a cow is infected or not. And, you know, we're getting sensitivities and specificities in, you know, the mid-70s, low 80s, which mm. which is not bad. Um, and what we've also shown is that that timing of the herd test is probably not as critical as people might think. You know, there's obviously a concern that if we've got herd test data that's, say, eight weeks old, that, in the intervening time, a cow may have become infected, had a low cell count back in March, and we're drying it off in May. Therefore, we're treating a cow with a with a new inf- that's acquired a new infection. And and while that's technically true, in fact, it doesn't happen very often. And so we've mm. looked at, for example, herd test data and dry off milk samples from herds with really high bulk tank somatic cell counts where you might expect high new infection rates. And in fact, the predictive value, the ability of herd tests to split cows into infected, not infected, is not different in herds that are running a cell count of 300,000 from a herd that's running at 100,000. Now, the proportion of cows that are infected obviously goes up, as you'd expect, but the ability of herd test somatic cell count to split cows and differentiate uninfected and infected cows does not vary. We've also looked at herds where we know we've got a lot of staph aureus. So we've done a lot of culture work where we know herds have got staph or they don't have a lot of staph. And again, we've looked at herd test data and said, how good is herd test data at predicting whether cows are infected in herds that have a lot of staph compared to herds that don't have a lot of staph? And the answer is it doesn't make a lot of difference. The the predictive Mm. value of, of somatic cell count is still good. So, and paradoxically, what we've also shown is that a herd test in the last two weeks before drying off is less predictive than a herd test that was done 
a month ago. And you might say, but that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. The reason that that works is that as milk yield comes down in late lactation, cell counts start rising for physiological reasons. We start kicking some cows into mammary gland involution, which mm. is so, you know, we get an increase in cell count. So you get a lot more false positives in if you have a herd test right at the, you know, right in the last week or two before drying off. And so you yeah. misclassify more cows in a herd test that's very, very recent, particularly if you're on once a day, than if you take a herd test that's four or six weeks old. And again, it's almost counterintuitive, but the data, the empirical data says that is the case. So look, I'm pretty relaxed about using herd test data up to 70 or 80 days old, and, and we've got data to support that statement. Um, we've got data to support the fact that that even a single herd test, you know, in that last couple of months before drying off is almost as predictive as having four herd tests, right? Mm. So the last herd test is is the best data. It is the most yep. recent data. And, and it's not, it's actually not demonstrably worse, statistically worse at predicting infection than having four herd tests and going through and picking out the highest somatic cell count out of the four herd tests and using that as your cut point. So, you know, I, I think the, the take-home message here is herd testing is pretty good. Putting a caveat around that, if, for example, you've got a, a herd that's got, you know, 10% of quarters that are infected are drying off, which is about average, that's, that's about what we see, one in 10 quarters in a herd will be infected at drying off. The majority of those are going to be minor pathogens. 90% of those, 10%, so 9% mm. of the herd in most herds are going to be coagulase negative staph or, or coronibacterium. And in fact, we've only got in most herds a couple of percent of cows in that low cell count group that are infected with a, a, a staph or a, or a strep ubris. But if we draw a line in the sand at, at 150,000, for example, yeah. about uh, 1-2% of the cows that are below that 150,000 cell count will truly be infected with either Staph aureus or Strep ubris, mm. right? That, is, that is true. It's not mm. many, yeah. Mm. And so... Um, if you if you think about it, say a 500 cow herd, where just pulling numbers out of my head, say 20% of those cows uh, are over the um, 150,000 cell count, um, you know we might have. In fact, sorry, I'll, I'll use 30%. Uh, you know we might have 150 cows that are over the threshold. Mm. Um, on one axis, on the other axis, we've got perhaps 10% of them that are truly infected. So we might have uh, 50 truly infected cows. Mm. The the somatic cell count will pick up, uh, you know, something like 40 of the 50 infected cows will be correctly yeah. classified. There will be, you know, 10 out of that 500 um, mm. that that maybe have a major pattern infection that sneak below the threshold, right? So, mm. you know, I've, I've laboured the point a little bit, but, you know, herd <laughs> test is pretty good, but there yeah. will always be a small number of cows that will sneak through under the radar screen, and they haven't necessarily gone clinical, they haven't necessarily got a high cell count at any stage, but they are genuinely infected with a major pathogen infection. And that's true whether we use conductivity, whether we use cell count, mm, whether we mm. use RNT. There's always going to be a small number of cows in any given herd that will sneak through under the radar screen. Yeah, and what's what's the real impact of that, though? I mean, you know, at a, at a herd level, 
does that have a really big impact on the next lactation if that if we miss those cows? Yeah, the short answer is no, um, yeah. and and for a couple of reasons. One is that. Uh, the immune system actually does an amazing job. So, you know, mm. we have on various research studies had animals that we've retrospectively known, found out that they had major pathogen infections. So some of our teat seal studies are drying off. For example, we take a milk sample, treat the cow with teat seal. We then go back to the lab and say, well, were there bugs there? Yes or no. And, and sometimes there are in those low cell count mm. cows. And then we've followed those animals through to the next lactation and milk sample them again. And what we've shown is that, um, for things like minor pathogens, for, for CNS and Carini, you know, 80 or 90% of those infections go away, even mm. if, you know, just treated with teat sealant. With strep hubris, it's about 70 to 80% of those mm. existing infections go away, um, with teat seal alone. With staph aureus, it's about 50%. So, you know, about half mm. of those staphs mm. will survive. So if you use the, the current kind of approach of using antimicrobials of teat seal in the high cell count cows and teat seal alone in the low cell count cows, you will have more cows infected at calving than if you'd done blanket dry cow therapy. You know, that mm. that is true. Majority mm. of the difference is is minor pathogens. You'll have, you know, because some of those CNSs and carinis will survive. But the important thing is if you've got good infection control in your herd, if you've got good teat spraying in place, if you've got uh, your milking machines working well, you don't have a lot of teat end damage, and hence your cow-to-cow transmission of those aureus is relatively low, then the net effect at the population level is pretty small. Um, yeah, yeah. And we, we would see, so there's probably a couple of things in there. I mean, there's, it's easy to kind of, in simplistic terms, think that if you don't treat those cows that, 100% of them will will come through as an infection at the start of the next lactation, which is not true. And the flip side of that is that if you do treat them, zero of them will come through. Um, and neither of those statements rate, are true. And neither of those <laughs> is actually true. And, and actually, the effect on on how many how many bacteria actually come through is the difference between the, the self cure rate and the cure rate to the dry Correct. cow, which is actually not that big. Yeah, um, staph aureus yeah, cure rates on dry cow are 70%, right? And yet, yeah, what yeah. I'm saying is the natural cure rate of these low cell count yeah. staph aureus is 50%. So the, yeah, you know, it's yeah. 20% of a very small population of animals. So mm-hmm. you're, you're absolutely right, Matt. Mm, yeah, and and I think you know those that have uh, had the experience of doing the selective dry cow and doing what you say, doing a good job of it over a period of time, would tell you that um, the the effect on the cell count, the effect on the cases of mastitis, the the both individual cell counts and and herd cell counts is very small, if any. And in fact, some of those herds actually do better with selective dry cow than they do with blanket. Um, perhaps because they're more attentive to some of those other things as well. So, so yeah, you know, done well, the selective dry cow does work extremely well, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, the research studies that have been done where, you know, there's been a lot of micro done and people have done head-to-head comparisons of uh, dry cow therapy versus teat seal in low cell count cows, the research data suggests, in fact, that the teat seal alone cows do better than the dry cow alone cows. And that's Mm. probably because the net effect on bacteriological cure rate in that population is is actually very small in absolute cow numbers or even relative cow Mm. numbers. But the big win with the internal teat sealants is that protective effect in you know, in later dry period where, you know, mm. the 
the dry cow therapy has dropped below the MIC. And if you've got any open teat ends in those animals, the antimicrobials are probably no longer effective and mm. there will be bugs there. If you've got an open teat canal, new infections may be established and they won't be clinical. In fact, they're very unlikely to be clinical, but they will be infections. And in fact, you know, we, we now we now have very good understanding that particularly with the environmental pathogens, Strepubris and to some extent E. coli, most of those infections are actually occurring either just after the drying off period or mm. running into calving. And, you know, that's mm. the really big win that Teat Seal gives us, particularly mm. in New Zealand, where we tend to have these dry periods that are 80, 90, 100 days long, and none mm. of our antimicrobials are going to yeah. Totally effective over that total window of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so before we move on to to the preventative side and and the use of the teat sealants to prevent those new infections, um, which again is another nice segue. But before we do that, just on those cows that do get treated on the selection, just to just to clarify, and I know as you say, there's there's not really a, a hard and fast every herd should do this, but as a general rule. You're talking that herd test, what, somewhere between about the 30 and 80 days, roughly? Yep. Um, and and at a, uh, and a single herd test is okay? And a cut point of, what, 150,000? Or, yep. or do you have some guidelines there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, you know, I don't want to get into it too technically, but, yeah, obviously yes. there's a trade-off. The lower your cell count cut point, the more mm. sensitive you are, but the less specific you are. So you end up, obviously, as you drop your cell count threshold, you treat more cows, and there are more false positive. There are more cows that are truly not infected get treated. So there's a balance mm. there. But, look, I and I don't die in the die in the ditch over this you know 150 i tend to use because that's what smart mm. sam says and you know consistent messaging but if people want to use 125 or use 200 it's not going to make a huge difference the sensitivity and specificity of that cut point varies by a few percent as you go between about 125 and 250 it's not a big black and white cut point you know it, it's somewhere in that range but yeah i think just to keep messaging consistent using the 150 for cows 120 for heifers is, is fine it's yep. great it works mm. and for the herds that aren't herd testing then just to, just to cover those off uh, what's the best guidance around those yeah, so that, that's a very good question. Yeah, there's still about 30% of herds out there that aren't herd testing. So there's a couple of options there. One is to do a single herd test in late lactation. Just say to them, look, if you don't want a herd test other times, yeah, that's fine, but let's get a herd test. The other thing that we've done and others have done, in fact, is to use the rapid mastitis test, the RMT. And so we did a study a number of years ago where we enrolled a number of herds and basically split the herds in half. Half of the herd, we applied the current best practice SAM plan rule. So we said, you know, over 150, 120, you got um, actually dry cow plus teat seal. Below that, you got teat seal. The other half of the cows in that herd, we RMT'd every quarter of every cow. Now, we actually knew the somatic cell count, but we ignored it. We just said, let's pretend we don't know the cell count of these cows. And we just went in and RMT'd everything. And so the way we did it, we just had a, a tech running around ahead of the dry cow, you know, the, the techs doing the drying off. And they were really quick. They just went around, RMT'd, spray rattled in their top pocket, and they just dotted the quarters they got an RMT positive on. And the design on that study was that any dotted quarter, so any RMT positive quarter, got antibiotic plus a teat seal, and the 
other undotted quarters got teat seal. So every quarter of every cow got teat mm. seal, but mm. in the R&T group, those that are R&T positive got a, an antimicrobial as well. Now, we followed those cows through. We did a bunch of micro. We followed them through the next lactation. And what we showed was that we used more antibiotic when we used the R&T approach than where we used just the straight smart SAM rules. And the reason for that was that in the low cell count cows, there are obviously some cows at a quarter level that have, you know, you pick up on the R&T that herd test doesn't pick mm. up, you know, because you've got four quarters. Mm. If one of them's R&T positive, yes. the other three quarters kind of diluted out and it may yep. not trigger the somatic cell count. So it may be more sensitive. And in fact, that's what happened. We, we treated more mm. cows with antibiotics in the R&T group because in that low cell count group, we actually started, you know, a proportion of those got treated with antibiotics, which by definition, the smart SAM group didn't. So the, the overall antimicrobial use was higher in the R&T group. Um, but in fact, the outcomes were better. When we followed them through to the following lactation, um, there were l- fewer infected quarters in the RMT group than in the, the conventional group, the following smart SAM group. And the outcomes in terms of her tests were actually better. But we didn't have a blanket trichotherapy control group because, you know, we knew what would happen there. So using the RMT alone reduced our antimicrobial use compared to if we'd done blanket, but it didn't reduce antimicrobial use down to where we'd use herd test as our, our cut point. But as I say, the outcomes were actually really good. So look, I'd, I'd encourage people to go down that pathway if they've got herd owners that, that aren't herd testing, don't want to herd test, can't herd test for whatever reason. RMT works fine. Um, and the, the practical implementation of that's not hard. You just need to have, you know, one of the techs in the team who's good at RMTing and trained up and they just run it. You know, the farmer says, right, we're driving for these 200 cows. Run them in, however you're running them in. They go ahead of the, the, the dry-off team, spot the cows, and then the dry-off team just look at the cow and go, oh, yeah, okay, I need four tubes of teat seal and this is a two dot cow. I need two, two tubes of dry cow. In I go. So, and that it can be implemented. It does work. Yeah. Sort of the next, the next stage, uh, not just making a decision at cow level, getting right down to quarter level, which is going to get interesting and potentially that's more of the future coming, um, even on those high cell count cows, but it's another, another discussion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So just mentioned before about the treating of the cows with, um, teat sealants alone. So I'm sure there's plenty of vets out there that have seen the, the bad side of that, I suppose. And that's one of the things that we have learned. You know, it's, it's one of those things, I suppose, about medicine, and we've sort of talked about it. Some of the unpredictability that you kind of you you do something, you change something, and you think you know what's going to happen, and then something different happens. So there's been a few things kind of show up around um, that we've learned as we've gone along. And the good thing is that while there probably have there might have been some initial bad experiences, I think we understand enough now to to be able to really prevent as many of those as we can. So there's probably a few things that can go wrong around that drive process, aren't there? Yeah, and I think, again, to put some context around that, we are going to get clinical mastitis in the drive period. Um, Absolutely. It's real, right? You can get clinical mastitis Mm -hmm. in the drive period. You can get clinical mastitis in heifers too. And going back to the days before we used teat seal, we we did some work 20 years ago where we, we actually looked at, um, dry period clinical mastitis, and then we looked at how much dry cow therapy the herd had used because 
you know, the original SAM plan actually talked about selective dry cow. And mm. what we found was that even in herds that were using blanket dry cow therapy, about 2% of cows on average went clinical over the dry period when farmers actually mm. went and had a look you know, if they actually went and observed. But that actually varied between herds quite a lot. Some herds actually had no dry period clinicals. Some had 5 or 8% of cows, even treated with dry cow therapy. So I think one of the things is that as we've gone to blanket and particularly as we've gone to blanket plus teat seal, farmers and perhaps vets have assumed that dry cow therapy, uh, dry mm. period clinicals go away and they don't look and they you know, have this expectation that we're never going to get dry period clinical mastitis. So the message is we are always going to have dry period clinical mastitis if you go and look. So the question is how do we minimise that? How do we manage that? The other comment I'd make is that in a sense blanket dry cow therapy is easier to implement than selective dry cow therapy. You don't have to yeah. decide which cows are being treated. The management of the actual drying off process, and by that I mean starting a couple of weeks out and looking at feed management and milking frequency, the drying off process, the actual physical process of putting the tubes in, and the post-dry off process is easier to manage with blanket dry cow therapy. You've mm. got a lot more room to move, you know. If the hygiene of the team is not quite up to scratch, that are inserting the tubes because you're putting antimicrobial it masks some of that yeah. perhaps poor hygiene practice whereas mm. obviously with an internal teat sealant because there's not an antimicrobial there you're you're exposed as it were to those poor hygiene practices being seen as clinical mastitis cases and i'm, I'm sure all of us have had situations mm. where farmers ring us up a couple of days after they've dried off some animals with teat sealant and we've got some acute mastitis cases and often mm. when we go and culture them they are excuse the language shit bugs they are you know yep. the gram negatives um mm. you know, e-colis and klebsiellas and serratias and what mm. have you and, mm. and they're nasty they're they're, they're not very mm. pleasant mm. to deal with and that's very clear cut you know so in my mind yes. they're very clear-cut situation there has been a hygiene failure um mm. what are more complex to deal with are some of these clinical mastitis cases that turn up you know, weeks after the drying off process um, that may be associated with gram-positive pathogens. Now, most mm. of them are actually strep uberus, but yes. we do see in some herds in some years, we see quite a few staph aureus turn up in those mm. dry period clinicals. And, you know, that's a bit of a head-scratcher. Where have those staph aureus come from? Um, and I guess logically there's three three possible ways that that staph aureus, or three time points, I should say, when that staph got into that quarter. One is it was actually a pre-existing infection that was there when we put the internal teat sealant in and it's flared at some later period of time. So yeah. is that feasible? Yeah, of course it's feasible. The second possibility is that it is iatrogenic in the sense that we've introduced the staph aureus right at the time of drying off, either because that mm. staph was sitting, you know, on the teat skin of the animal or in the bottom of the teat canal and we've pushed it up with the teat sealant. It could be off the hands of the person inserting the tube, for example. You know, it mm. could be a human staph aureus that's gone up there, although we've just recently proved that that, well, looked at that and it's probably unlikely. The mm. third possibility is that, We've actually got a new infection with staph aureus in the dry period. Now, that sounds a little bit counterintuitive. Like we've always talked about staph aureus as being a cow-to-cow -cow pathogen that spread during the milking process by liners or hands or whatever. So 
from first principles, you'd say, well, you can't have a new Staph aureus infection in the dry period because we're not milking the cows by definition. But Mm -hmm. we forget that Staph aureus is actually a commensal of a cow. So there is Staph aureus sitting up the nose of many cows. There is Staph aureus sitting on the skin and the teat skin and the udder and the leg skin of many cows. And in fact, in research studies, we do see new dry period Staph aureus infections. So we, you know, we've taken milk samples drying off. No Staph aureus there. We've got to calving and the Staph aureus there. Now, it mm. could be we misdiagnosed it drying off or we've actually truly got new infection. And I, I, you know, there is enough evidence to suggest that we genuinely can have new dry period, um, Staph aureus mm. infections. So, yeah. So the question is, you know, how do we manage this? How do we manage mm. these risks? And, in a sense, we've almost got to relearn how to dry cows off. And it's, it's interesting talking to farmers who were around pre-teat seal days, some of the older farmers back in the 70s and 80s, who genuinely did selective dry cow therapy in those days. And they talk about managing the cows going into the drying off process. So, you know, reducing overall feed intake, switching out the high-protein feeds and starting to feed a bit more roughage, higher ADF, NDF um, fibrous feeds, reducing milk yield that way, reducing milking frequency. So, you know, and that all makes sense. And there's research data to support that. So, in fact, Mm. stuff done in New Zealand shows that those processes do reduce milk yield, which is itself a risk factor for for dry period clinicals. So managing that side of the process is really important. Uh, the other important part of the process is the actual physical business of getting tubes into cows. And so yeah. having well-trained teams, uh, not putting them under time pressure, not trying to manage dry off too many cows on any given day, uh, not putting the cows out to feed in the effluent paddock just before you dry them off, um, not rushing the job, putting too much pressure, yeah. and then... Post-dry off, we also need to minimise the risk that we're going to get milk leakage after drying off. So, you know, not running cows down races after you've put mm. either dry cow or teat seal, it doesn't actually matter, you will lose product. So walking them quietly down, um, not bringing them back to the parlour for, you know, two weeks or so because we don't want milk let down and managing that feed through that post-dry off period. And there's a bit of a tension, you know, we want to not drop body condition score off because we want to maintain mm. body condition score to get good repro performance and good milk yield next lactation. Mm. But we mm. certainly don't want to be putting condition score on acutely after drying off because that will drive, you know, milk yield and, and the risk of milk leakage, which increases the risk of, mm. of lost mm. product and, and of new infection. So, you know, every farm yeah. is different and we need to work all that through. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess one of the problems is that you're right. I mean, you've got the older traditional farmers who were very, um, conscious of, of managing that drying off process. And then the advice actually changed and the industry advice was milk, 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 stop. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, and put blanket antibiotic in. And to a large extent, people got away with that. And so, so you're right. It's almost relearning how to dry cows off. And yeah, so I sort of talked about all three of these issues and I kind of try and break it into into three parts that, that there's probably three things that tend to go wrong around that drying off time, um, all with different sort of epidemiology and etiology, I suppose. So, you know, different different bugs involved and this is generalisation really. But the first one is just gross hygiene issues at, at drying off. 
easily solved, mostly, um, as you say, the shit bugs, the coliforms um, that come through. And with a sort of toxic mastitis, a, a cow that's sick pretty quickly after drying off too, in the day or two after drying off, isn't it? And, and then you get your, your ones where, which are probably the second one that you were talking about there, the, the ones that are a little later in the dry period, mostly strep uberus, but with some others in there, um, which is really mismanagement of the drying off process more than anything else. And leakage and loss of teat sealant probably is, is a big factor in those, we think. And, you know, so, so that's, that's about managing. Both of them are about managing the dry off process, but one's about the application and the hygiene and the other is about the actual, the whole process, I suppose. And, and the third one that's really intriguing in there, and you talked about it, is those Staph aureus ones. And some of those are actually quite acute with sick cows with gangrenous mastitis around drying off too. A little later than those, those toxic mastitis ones sometimes, sort of more, more around that sort of 72 hour period, they seem to turn up, don't they? But, and they're the kind of really intriguing ones. And, and, I think what we have learned perhaps after a few of those is that good hygiene prevents coliforms, you know, prevents those ones, and really good hygiene largely prevents the Staph aureus um, issues that we see, although there still seems to be the very occasional one that sneaks through, but, but it's just that sort of almost reaching surgical level of hygiene and, and <laughs> properly training people into how to really clean a teat properly seems to really minimise those issues around the Staph aureus one which is something that we've sort of had to learn and educate people about, I suppose. But is that sort of fair, reasonable? Yeah, I think it is. Um, those staph ones are really frustrating, and I, look, yeah. I understand the frustration the vets and farmers feel with them. But putting it in context, you know, when we look at we, – we've done a lot of micro and dry period clinicals. You know, I've investigated quite a few of these. And, yes, we get the odd staph for us through, but, in fact – it, it, it's it's the streps and the gram negatives mm. that are generally more common. And so I guess the thing about the staph ones is that they're right in your face. So, you know, if you get a dead mm. animal um, and you, you, you grow a pure staph, then that's a, a bad outcome. With the streps, generally they don't die. Uh, you know, they don't get mm. toxic. So it, mm. it's the fact that you have a dead cow, I think, and, and particularly, mm. you know, I feel for the veterinarians who kind of feel like they've sort of talked if you like a farmer into using selective and then you have a problem with a with a staff case. So, you know, I, I understand that frustration. But yeah, look, I, I it comes back to good cow selection, good process, and, mm. and it does minimize minimize those risks. Um, mm. we have more or less ruled out that it's human staph aureus that's causing these dry period clinicals. That what, what we have shown is that the staffs that turn up in those dry period staph cases are bovine adapted staphs. And in fact, they're no more virulent. They've got no more resistance mm. genes than the average staph out of, out of bovine milk samples. So they're not superbugs in any shape or form. They're, they're mm. just existing staph aureus in those populations of cows. And the cow is likely the source of them, but it's mm. just not quite clear. You know, you know, is it the nose? Is it the skin? Is it the teat end? and when those bugs are getting in. But, yeah, the yeah. best advice, as you say, is just hygiene, hygiene, hygiene. The other thing I would add as a caveat, and I guess this is a, a kind of a help for those people who are dealing with herds that have had a bad experience, is that we've gone on and done some work to show that in low somatic cell count cows, it's the older animals, those that are four or more years old, that are producing more than 15 litres of milk 
um, at the last herd test, which is the best data we've got, mm. are about twice the risk of having a dry period clinical mastitis event than either younger cows or lower production cows. So one thing that vets might, you know, people might like to try is if they've had a herd owner that's had a bit of a train wreck um, and they want to be more cautious, as it were, or, or apply tighter um selection criteria, you know, I'd still use her test somatic cell count. I would still exclude cows with any history of clinical massage from the selective group. But what I would add on top of that is pull out the 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 over four year old cows that are producing more than more than fifteen liters at the mm. last herd test and put them into the dry cow therapy group because they are at higher risk and so it's mm. just a way of saying to the farmer working with the farmer and saying you know maybe there is something about your farm that's at high risk why don't we make the selection criteria for the teat seal alone mm. group tighter so we reduce risk for you as well as addressing all those other issues around the drying off process from from start to finish. Mm, yeah, which is which is good. I mean, it it's more value being added into that that dry cow consult process and and more individual you know cow medicine and amongst the herd medicine, I suppose, which is which is should be more rewarding stuff for us to do as well. So, but um, yeah, I mean, and on that topic, I suppose we we probably just about covered everything we need to unless there's anything else you can you can think of but um, the overall message I think you know for, for me having sort of I suppose watching a bit from the outside in industry and um, and watching the progress I think you can understand that some people are looking and going oh we're not going fast enough you know we're not making progress fast enough we're not getting there you know there's there's the odd thing gone wrong but in fact we've we've learned a lot we've actually come a long way we actually know how to do this really well now and the people that do it well, like I said earlier, get a really good outcome. And, you know, if you look at the national statistics, what's happening with national cell count and, you know, through this whole process, I mean, if it wasn't working well, we would be seeing bulk cell counts across the country going up. We'd be seeing all sorts of things happen. And it just isn't happening, you know. So so we're actually pulling this off. We're actually doing it quite well. So, you know, it's a, we should actually feel quite encouraged about it, I think. And that even if there have been a few bumps along the road we've actually figured out how to get around them and and do it really well so yeah you know just just keep going i guess and, and keep the faith with it and um yeah yeah look i think that's a really good summary that you know it, 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 it's, i guess it's just human nature i mean mm. i guess many of us have been on the receiving end of a rather grumpy phone call from a, a farmer yep. or another vet so you know a colleague saying oh i've got a dry period clinical case you know i just talked this farmer into selective and you know you remember those cases because yeah they, mm. they, they, they are unpleasant but i think you're right, we need to flip it around and say, actually, in the great majority of herds, the great majority of time, so long as the process is well managed, you, you do get good outcomes. And so it's, yeah, stepping back from the, the noise of the odd, odd unfortunate situation and saying, yeah, we can do it. And, and as you say, we, we understand the science better, the epidemiology better now than we did five years ago, and we've got the tools uh, mm. to do a good job. And, and kind of at that higher level, it is the right thing to do, you know, as prescribers, as veterinarians who have a stewardship role around antimicrobial usage and antimicrobial resistance, we do need to lead in this space. We do need to be seen as responsible users of, of these very important tools. And and to maintain that mana, as it were, yeah, we, we are mm -hmm. going to have to work through 
changes in the way we do things. Um, but, you know, with, with the overarching goal of, of reducing antimicrobial use and antimicrobial resistance. And, and that's a good thing overall for, for the industry, but also for us as human beings, because we don't want antimicrobial resistance, uh, when we end up in hospital. So, you know, there are good mm. reasons to do this kind of thing. And, and some of that's quite selfish as well as sort of industry good. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a very nice summary and finish i think so yeah thank you very much scott um really enjoyed that and hopefully yeah hopefully the listeners have as well i'm sure there's some really useful stuff in there and actually just as a quick note we will put a few things in the um in the notes for the episode we can put the a link to the tech note 14 the vet council prescribing guidelines and to the nzba policies as well just so people if they want to know a little bit more can do can click through to those and um yeah so once again thank you very much scott oh thanks very much yeah i've really enjoyed that chat and i think we've covered um a lot of ground on what's a really important topic (laughs) (laughs) that's great thanks Thanks for listening to the Vet Chat NZ, proudly brought to you by Vubac. If you made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email matt.wells at vubac.co.nz or call 0800 VUBAC.